Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Welcome to episode 124 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Um, let's be honest about this, Andrew. This is take two, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the slightly delayed episode 124. 124.2. Yes. yes, there was another well, episode right. 124, but nobody's going to be hearing that. This is a facelifted episode 124. Um, we had tech issues yesterday, which is why we're recording it again on Tuesday morning. We'll get this episode out as quickly as possible, um, and all will be well with the world. So, okay. This, well, so here's the question: Am on. I going to have to pretend well, that I it. haven't heard the reader question? <laughs> Because last There's night, that. when we did record it, I absolutely hadn't heard the reader question, but clearly I have now. Or maybe you'll chuck another one at me, so it'll be a kind of curveball. If you think you can be convincing, maybe you should. Otherwise, okay, I'm, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to pretend I haven't heard the reader question. Well, there's something to look forward to, right? Um, so last week we spoke about the cars that car people, car lovers, have to drive before they die to for their motoring education to be complete. That was the the topic last week. This time, um, we're doing something similar but different. These are the cars that you and I personally feel that we have to drive um, before we die because these are the cars that we haven't had a go in yet. Well, we'll come back to that point. Or the cars that we are determined to drive or the cars that um, have eluded us. So this is more personal to us, isn't it, this one? Yes, some might say self-indulgent. In fact, this could be the most self-indulgent podcast we've ever recorded. Possibly. <laughs> but hey. But that's okay. <laughs> we'll only do it once. We'll only do it once. Well, we might do it again tomorrow if this one doesn't work. Um, so before we do that, we've got a couple of things to discuss. First of all, it's what you and I got up to on Thursday last week. We had two very special cars in a great part of the country with some brilliant roads, a superb photographer, um, do you want to explain why we felt it was important to get the Porsche 718 Cayman GT4 RS and the 911 GT3 together for a twin test? Yeah, only, well, I mean, I'll be brief about this. It's because, I mean, well, whatever it is, for 23 years, you know, GT3s have been, you know, group test against all sorts of cars from 
Lamborghinis, Ferraris, you know, Mercedes, Fords, Nissans, all sorts. Um, and they've all come away, you know, with bloody noses. The GT3 wins. It's the one thing we always know about any group test with a GT3 in it is that we kind of know how it's going to end up because the GT3 yeah. is just going to win it. Um, and it just occurred, didn't it, that with the GT4 RS, that actually may no longer be the case. So the enemy within. Um, because, you know, they've got the same engine. Frankly, in the Cayman, it's in a rather more sensible place. They've both only got two seats. Um, the Cayman is 20 grand cheaper, in theory at least. In reality, you know, if you go and look on the overs market, you know, any GT4 RS or modern GT3 is, you know, people are asking over £200,000 for them, which in my view is nuts. Um, but yeah, it just struck me as being this is the greatest chance yet of a car coming along that might beat the GT3. And it's made by Porsche. So we just thought that was a... Uh, an interesting thing to do and indeed it was wasn't it we disappeared up a couple of mountains in wales actually and um had an amazing day yeah it was fantastic the photos are superb um it's a compelling test because porsche has waited forever and a day to unleash the cayman with a proper motorsport engine with the full rs treatment they've been reluctant to do it for such a long time because of exactly the 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 issue that you are describing there and the cayman has physical advantages over the gt3 over the 911 as a performance car it's a bit smaller it's mid-engined it's a bit narrower i'm assuming it's, it's a little bit lighter yeah it is so, it's, only, it's only 20 kilos but it's 20 kilos that's something so maybe this is the car to topple the gt3 um, of course, we're not going to give it away here, are we? The story will go out later this week on the Intercooler app and website, um, the-intercooler.com, if you want to go and check out the website. If you've been meaning to start your one-month free trial and you haven't done it yet, maybe with this test coming, now is the time to do that. Um, okay, let's just, talking of the app, let's just briefly look at a couple of the pieces that we've published in the last few days. One is um, a story I wrote called Extreme Machine, and it's on topic here because... It's about the brand new 911 GT3 RS, which is just looking at the tech spec, looking at the photos, reading the press release. It feels like the biggest leap forward for a GT3 RS. It's a racing car. Maybe ever. It's a racing car, isn't it? Yeah. It is extraordinary the lengths they've gone to. The aero is a quantum leap. They've put the radiator where you would normally put your luggage because that allows them to do trick stuff with the, the aero. It also means it's more similar to the GT3 RSR and GT3R racing cars. Um, so they, it feels like they've pulled out all the stops for this one. For this one. Yeah, um, and it's obviously going to be amazing. And the Nürburgring lap time is going to be... Well, I think a 992 GT3 does it in... This, I think they did a 655, which is pretty bonkers. This thing's got Smash. three times the downforce. Yeah, not much more um, power. No, but you know, power is actually not that important a commodity at the Nurburgring, and you know, maybe the Nurburgring is not that important to a lot of people. I know it isn't, but it is. I think with cars like this, it is actually an interesting measure, albeit only one measure. Um, so I think we're looking at, I think we're looking at a six forty something lap, aren't we? Which is, I mean, <laughs> what I find so extraordinary is a bit of a sort of student of the history of um, of racing and places like that. In 1983, they had the last ever major race on the Nordschleife. Um, 1,000k races. That's when Stefan Beloff broke the lap record and did everything else. Um, And, you know, the sort of times that these road cars will get around the Nürburgring in now, 
on road tyres, albeit fairly uncompromising road tyres, would have got them, you know, certainly a distance inside the top 10 qualifying for that race. That race, which was a race for, you know, in the top 10 would have been exclusively prototypes running full ground effect bodywork, massive slick (laughs) tyres, huge amounts of power, um, you know, proper weapons, not converted road cars, prototypes cars only ever designed to race and now we have things with number plates on them going just as fast i mean i would think that there's probably a porsche 956 that was in that race which didn't qualify as fast as this new gt3 rs will get around that lap and okay the circuit has changed a little bit it's a little bit easier it will be a little bit quicker but even so yeah it is to me absolutely astonishing do you remember it wasn't that long ago that a very fast lap around the ring for a road car was eight minutes that eight was minutes. A okay, i can remember when fast cars started going under eight minutes and that was a big that was a big moment wasn't it and we're potentially yeah. now close to a minute and a half faster which as a proportion it's just bananas um well we're driving it soon aren't we uh yeah end of next month yeah I say we. Bloody wait yeah it's actually you. when you say we you mean, you mean me <laughs> <laughs> sorry we're, we're a team andrew right so the, the other piece i wanted to talk about before we get on with this week's podcast is uh the caterham 420 cup which you've been driving this is the yeah talking of racing cars for the road that's precisely what this is isn't it absolutely yeah i mean it is it, it is basically it's their racing car um with as little done to it as possible to make it road legal um so it comes with well i think the three different sorts of cages you can get with it um but it's you know it's the 210 horsepower two liter ford engine um obviously no you know roof or screens or doors but it's it's still got for instance that six speed sadev sequential gearbox in it um and it's the most it's not the fastest caterham uh, because you can still get a 620 um but it's you know it is the probably the most extreme road car that they have produced uh and i, I was i'm very much in two minds about it you know I, I i did what i always do with those cars i got up really early and i headed up into the mountains with it because you can't drive those cars in traffic and there were moments when it was absolutely sublime you know when the road was fast and clear and open and you could use full throttle upshifts with that uh, with that gearbox, and yeah, it's such an intense, exhilarating feeling. But actually, almost all the rest of the time, I sat there thinking, I'd just be happy in a normal 420. It's just the same engine, but has you know a screen and doors and a roof. And maybe I'm getting old, I don't know. Um, but it's just so much more usable. You don't have to look like an idiot wearing a crash helmet. Um, you have a normal gearbox, which doesn't clank and bang. And that, and that sequential box, it's a racing box. It's designed for racing. So it's designed, you know, only to be happy with, you know, changing you know, upshifts done under full throttle. And, you know, the rest of the time, it's a bit clunky. It's also, you know, it's 20 grand, which in catering terms is a lot of money, more expensive than a 420. And, you know, I, I, I think that for 95% of the time, I'd simply just enjoy myself more, maybe 99% of the time. Um, then again, and I haven't done this, I haven't driven the 420 Cup on a track, and I imagine that on a track it would be absolutely unbelievable. So I'm not dissing the car. All I am saying is that it's a, it's a track car. And if you're not driving it to or from or at a track, you're just much better off in something else. Because, you know, everybody knows who listens to this how much I love caterums. Um, 
and yeah that is a catering with a very specific purpose um and i for myself i quite like caterings which can do you know which can you know perform well on track but are also nice things just to go for a bimble in and you know yeah it's not that calm i'm afraid um well there we go and all that is on the intercooler app and website now the dash intercooler.com go and start your free trial right so these are the cars that you and i really feel that we have to drive and what I've tried not to do is just fill my list with all the supercars and hypercars I haven't driven. Um, yeah. For instance, I've never driven a V12 Lamborghini older than an Aventador, other than an LM002, which is sort of the weird way that motoring journalism works. Um, never driven a Bugatti. There are plenty of others. Some of these, okay, Bugatti might appear on my list, but we're trying not to just make it all the latest, um, flashiest, most expensive hypercars because it's kind of a given that we haven't driven those and we'd quite like to. So we're going to be a bit more interesting, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, the cars on my list uh, are on my list because they are either important or for sometimes quite, for quite weird reasons, uh, interesting to me. Um, and I haven't driven any of them apart from one which I only drove in a car park. <laughs> yeah, that counts. Um, all right, well, do you want to get us underway then? Uh, yeah, uh, can we start at the bottom um, and, and sort of try and work our way up? Um, I'd really like to drive an Austin Allegro. And I'm, and I'm not joking, I really <laughs> would like to drive an Austin Allegro. Come on, Allegro. defend that and then, I, defend it. Well, well, I never have. I don't think yeah. there's a car that I've read more about without having driven than an Austin Allegro. Because, you know, for whatever it is, probably a thick end of 50 years, I have been reading about how rubbish these cars are. Um, and, you know, maybe they are. But actually, if you hear, if you, what, what you actually read is how badly built they were and how terrible were the times and, you know, the awful, you know, Leyland stories of strikes and industrial unrest and everything else. And in that sort of fog... I've never been able to find out whether the car itself was okay. I don't expect it to be good, but I suspect it's not as rubbish as my, and I think most people's perception of it is. Um, and I just want to find out. And one of the reasons that I think that is that however terrible things were, however bad the management was, however um, you know difficult the unions were, however badly built the cars were, I think they had some quite good engineers there. Um, you know, oh, for yeah. instance, you know, a friend of, uh, of ours, Richard Bremner, has a princess, an Austin princess, which I have driven. Um, and, you know, it's a bit odd to look at and it's very brown inside and out. But actually, as a thing to drive, OK, it's, you know, it's not fast and it's not sporting, but it does the job it was required to do unbelievably well. So much better than I ever imagined it would do. It's so comfortable. It's so well packaged. It's it's quiet it's and actually is that the same era it's a bit later but yeah no absolutely similar eras yeah. um, um yeah they would have yeah i'm sure they would have overlapped um and i just didn't appreciate that i didn't realize just how well engineered that car was so yeah another one is in the maxi um which is kind of mm. like a big allegro isn't it um but, you know, they're, they're in the mid-70s. Maxis had five-speed gearboxes. You know, nothing other than the Italians. Nothing else did. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll get in it and I'll think, yeah, they were absolutely right. It's an absolutely terrible car. Um, but <laughs> I suspect if I drove an Allegra, maybe there's a story there. In fact, you know, I think, I think there probably is a story there. Yeah. I'll go and find an Allegro. I'll go and drive it. Um, 
We'll go, we'll go up, we'll take out a pack onto the raised roads where we took a GT4 RS. <laughs> and we'll do a proper supercar shoot on an Allegro. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? I reckon people well, would read that. We'll, we'll um, need a great photographer to make it look, to make the images yeah. look really beautiful. And it's got to be an on idea. an M or an N plate, because those are the ones with the square, with the Cortex steering wheel. Yeah. Um, and I just think that would be a good story. So we'll do that. Do you... I, I, I always find it very hard to drive cars from that sort of era, which is well before my time, and yeah. assess them critically because I, I, I don't know what was good for the time. I don't know how quiet a car should be. I don't know how well a car from that period should drive. Are you? Yeah. Are you better able to do that than me? Probably better, only because I'm older um, and I've driven more hmm. stuff from that era. Um, but to to an extent, you know, we're not testing these cars we're not you know getting in a time machine and trying to assess these cars to find out what they were like when they were new no you know a rubbish car whether it was built in 2020 or 1920 is a rubbish car and i've always said this you know bad cars don't Mm. get good just because they're old Mm. and i think that you could drive two you could drive two different cars from any area like 30s 50s 60s 70s um and you would be able to tell whether they're any good or not. Because they either be yeah. nice to drive, or they wouldn't. Yeah. And that yeah, doesn't two change. Cars. Two cars. Okay, but, okay, yeah, one, okay, forget, okay, one car. <laughs> and I think you could get into okay. one car um, from any era, and you would still be able to drive it and say whether you liked it or not. Whether it yeah. felt like a, a pleasant thing to operate. And if it didn't, then you'd know that. And it wouldn't matter what era it came from. You know, bad cars, unpleasant cars, or bad cars and unpleasant cars from whatever area they come. Mm. And I don't think the ratio of good to bad cars changes very much, if I'm honest with you. Well, we'll get you in an all-agra at some point, because that does sound entertaining. And we're going to stay at the bottom here. Um, My first nomination is actually a two-parter. There are two cars involved here, because I would love to drive one of the last Escorts back-to-back with one of the first Mondeos. And let me qualify or explain this. I I could have said Sierra and Mondeo or Last Escort and New Focus. But I want to drive the Last Escort and the first Mondeo because they were on sale for several years together. So you could have walked into a Ford showroom in the 90s, perhaps a little bit unsure if you want the bigger car or the smaller car, and be presented with something that is utterly dreadful in the Escort, as far as I can tell, and something game-changing in the Mondeo. And it's just so interesting to me that one car maker can build two cars at once that are so utterly different. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it just says everything, doesn't it, about the way that, about lead times and, you know, clearly, at some stage in the early 1990s, a decision was making it was made at Ford that slickly marketed mediocrity mm. um, no longer worked. But it takes a long time to implement, didn't it? Yeah, doesn't it? And you know, the Monday was the first car down the track. Um, and because I'm ancient, um, you know, I remember January 1993 like it was last week. Um, and you know, I remember finding out that the Monday was a game-changing, world-beating car long before I drove it because Hmm. having invited us to the launch, Ford then rang up and said, we are going to, if you want, turn up at your place with a truck on which you can load every single rival to the the Mondeo you can find and we'll take them to the south of France so that you can test our car against 
its closest competitor set. I've never known, man, known a manufacturer do that before, and I've never known one do it since. And you, you just knew that the you know, either that was just bravado or bluff of a scale that's <laughs> never been known in this industry, or they'd built a world beater. And of course, oh God, we didn't take them up on their offer, but we did go down there. We went down there in a 405, a Primera, a Carina, um, and it beat the lot. Um, mm. And, you know, coming from that history of the fourth generation Escort, which was one of the very worst cars I've ever driven. Um, and then suddenly you go from that to the Mondeo. You know, there, there was a bit of it maybe a bit cheesed off because you suddenly realised that they kind of knew how to do it and just hadn't yeah. bothered up yeah. until that point. But that Mondeo and then the Focus that followed it, they, were just, they weren't just you know, well-beating cars in their own right. They were genuinely game-changing because everybody else suddenly thought, oh, shit, mm. that's where the standard now is. Um, and you, know, you couldn't get away with it anymore. The game was over. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I completely it, understand. It would be a real demonstration of what, uh, what can be achieved when a car maker decides that it really cares about how its cars drive, which is what happened at Ford in the early 90s. They decided that they really cared and started yeah. really working hard. Um, I mean, and actually, it, Ford it, still has a reputation for great handling cars now, even now, yeah. decades later. At another point, and I didn't make this on the podcast, which will never go out, because uh, it's only just occurred to me. Um, but another example of that is, which would be an interesting um, parallel exercise to do, which drive a Ferrari 348 and then get yeah. a 355. And not only see the night and day difference between the two, but also you think about the Mondeo uh, and the Sierra or the Focus or the Escort. You know, the Mondeo and the Focus were brand new cars. Literally ground up new designs, not a carrier mm. part in common with their predecessors. The F three five five was a facelifted three four eight, and so it's really interesting to me to see what a difference can be made, even given given the pre existing architecture, because it felt like the two cars were entirely unrelated. It, that was a that was almost as big a change, and was, they were actually using the same basis. And actually, in that instance, it's not only how well the 355 was done but it has to also be how poorly the, three, the 348 oh, 100%, was done. 100% 100% there, there must have been laziness cost cutting um, it was it was complacency a lack of care. complacency it yeah. was it was pure complacency you know ferrari were in a terrible area you know, they had the testarossa they had the mondial um, you know nobody was you know, really mounting a convincing challenge to them. And then I think it was all down to the NSX, actually. I think Honda came along um, with this superb, brilliant um, mid-engine mm. supercar, which we all raved about. And then the 348 came last in a few group tests, one of them written by me. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that we had anything to do with it, but Ferrari must have seen the writing on the wall. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about, is it? <laughs> okay, so we need one more from you then. Uh, so I've done the maxi. I've done. Shall I? Shall I do another, even more rubbish car? Let's have it. Okay. <laughs> this will be this will be the the last of my truly terrible cars. But again, okay. you know, this is here because it's an important car, and there's another really important car I'm going to get to in a minute. Um, I want to drive a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah, I mean it was so for I... decades the best selling car the world had ever known designed by mm. Ferdinand Porsche. And unlike the Allegro, which I suspect is far better than its reputation suggests, 
I think the Beetle could perhaps even be worse because because of the sort of, you know, Herbie Goes Bananas and everything else. I think Beetles have a certain sort of charm and cuteness. And I People suspect do love them. All, they are just appalling cars. <laughs> I've never known anyone who's driven one whose opinion I would respect who actually liked them. I think they're just <laughs> dreadful, dreadful cars. But I don't know. I've been yeah. on the one. Yeah. I told this. I, I told this story in rather great detail last night, but I'm not going. I, th- I thought I banged on a bit too much, so I won't do it. But you know, I, w- I was once stuck for a lift back up a mountain in Switzerland, uh, and the only way to get back up the mountain was on the clinging to the ski rack of a beetle. Um, so I was drunk at the time, uh, <laughs> and young and stupid. Um, so um, yeah, so I've, so I've been on one, but I've never been in one, let alone in the driver's seat. So yeah, and it's just it's such an incredibly important car. And I just like to, I just like to understand it. Um, yeah. What, so what if you found you preferred it to the two CV? <laughs> Good um, <laughs> would that, you, would that you, you know, that, I mean, that thought is so utterly implausible. I'm not even going to entertain <laughs> it. Uh, it's, it simply isn't, it simply wouldn't happen. Um, okay. The leap that would that. be required. No, forget it. Absolutely. Not <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let, let me give you another one of mine. And this one, I feel horribly guilty about horribly guilty about. And I have, I've driven one briefly because I used to own one, um, but even so, I owned it for, I can't remember, it was a year or two, um, and I drove it, I think maybe six miles, slowly, along a busy A road. I, I never drove it properly um, because I was too young. I had um, an S13 Nissan 200SX, pop-up headlamps, dark blue, can't remember the reg, and I'm really sad about that, but it was, I bought it when I was 18 with these grand plans to turn it into a I don't know, really, a track day car or something. It was idiotic. Um, I ran out of money, stripped the lovely, pristine interior out of it. Oof. Ruined it. Utterly ruined it. Um, and the reason I want to drive a clean, standard, unmolested one is that I just Good don't luck know with that. how... That's the problem. Well, yeah, I don't know what they were actually like to drive, but also you just don't see them now. They. How would you find one? If you, if you look in the classifieds, they hardly ever come up for sale. Yeah. You, and if they you do, need to, you need to go to a Nissan museum somewhere, wouldn't you? Where probably. they've got a historic. Yeah, there'll be one in Japan, maybe. But they, yeah, they've all been molested now. Um, finding a clean standard one, as far as I can tell, is pretty close to impossible. Um, so I, you know, having owned one and ruined it, I want to understand exactly how good or not those cars were to drive. I also want to know exactly how big was my crime. You know, if I. If I spoiled what was actually a really quite wonderful car, I'll feel terrible about it. If it turns out it was okay to drive, maybe I won't feel so terrible. What what, what year was your car? Uh, I don't even know that. HJ. So was that late, maybe late eighties? Very late eighties. No, it's, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, I mean, I could I could shed a bit of light on them on, on it. I mean, they were good. They were really. It's oh, not what I wanted to hear. No, I mean, I could remember we did a. <laughs> God, again, I'm aging me. We did a triple test with that, a Corrado, and either a 924S or a 944. Um, and if I'm honest with you, it came last, but not by much. Oh. Not by much at all. It was absolutely up there. It was completely credible against those competitors. Mm. And they were, you know, those competitors were the best of the best in the era. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not a, oh my God, Carl, you know, mm. not a sort of modern 240Z, but um, really good. Mm. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Philistine. Okay. Well, that's okay. All right, back to you then. 
Um, okay. Uh, so, oh, it's my car park car. Um, so this oh, is yeah. a car I have driven, but it was, um, it was in a car park. Um, and one of the reasons it was in a car park was because I was, uh, I didn't have a driving license at the time because I wasn't old enough. And secondly, because it actually broke before it got to the end of the car park. Um, uh, my dad very briefly, um, in the, what would it have been? I suppose the early 1980s, um, had a BMW 2002 turbo. Mm. And people argue forever whether it or the Porsche 911 Turbo was the first turbo car to go on sale. Because I think, I think the 911 was shown first, but the BMW went on sale. I may be wrong about that, but whatever. Um, and I would like to drive it because my memory of that car was... Oh, I mean, I, th- I, think more, I think people today should... You know, if, if they could experience that, they would experience turbo lag of a level that they simply wouldn't have imagined possible. I can remember there was, <laughs> on the dash, there was this little gauge, a boost gauge, and it had a big white zone, which was basically no, no boost, don't worry. And there was an enormous red zone, which was, you've just blown up. And between the two was this tiny little sliver of green. And if the needle was pointing in the sliver of green, the car was operating properly. Um, <laughs> that's certainly my memory. Um, and, yeah, I would just like to go, I think it had 170 horsepower from a two-litre engine, um, and he only he only owned the car for about ten minutes because it just kept on blowing up. They just kept on, you know. I don't think it ever did anything major. I don't think it ever sort of grenaded itself, but it never ran properly, um, mm. including when I drove it in a car park. And I just, you know, an example of the first, you know, turbocharged car on sale. I think that would be a, a fun thing to do. Yeah, <clears throat> because that is yeah you know, right at the start of a new technology. It would feel primitive, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it would be very interesting to see exactly what it was like. Right. I'm not going to have too many hypercars on my list because that's boring, but I do have to have one. And that is the McLaren F1. Um, and it's obvious, really, isn't it? But it's such an icon, it always will be, um, that I just have to know for myself why. What actually is it like to drive? And how much of its reputation is deserved and how much of it is uh, has been, you know, trumpeted over the years and and spoken up over the years and ha- it would just be interesting to figure out for myself if it truly is um uh, such the icon that we all assume it to be is that engine really as special as we've been told a thousand times that it is does it actually steer and handle well um by hypercar standards i just i just have to know for myself i can't answer all these questions for you now but it's not quite the same thing is it um, yeah but all I can assure you, um, and please don't take my word for it, please find a way of getting yourself in one, um, because you'll never forget it. Uh, yeah. So many cars get hyped. So many cars get overblown and because so much purple praise is written about them at the time. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've been, you know, and I do mean this, I have been blessed not just to drive the car extensively when it was new on road and track, but also to drive it again really pretty recently i think it was 25th anniversary of the road test which was 94 so 2019 so just before lockdown i drove the same car again and it was not one whit less impressive in 2019 than it had been in 1994 despite the fact in 2019 we had a p1 and a senna there as well um and well i mean the fact the to me the irrefutable truth is that no car in the history of the automobile 
has expanded the envelope of road car performance like McLaren F1 did. Mm. And all by itself, before you even start to think about the subjective stuff, like the unbelievable noise of that engine, the throttle response, the feel of the steering, it's the smartness of the design. The fact it had three seats, it had luggage space, you had it cast the same shadow as a 911, back in an era when, yeah, there were XJ220s, there were these Leviathan cars. Before you even think about any of that, Mm. just because of how it didn't just, you know, break down the existing barriers, it smashed them to pieces. Um, It deserves its place in history, in my view. Um, And when you drive one, (laughs) you ain't going to be disappointed, I promise you that. (laughs) Do you know what? It is amazing that it was 911 size-ish with a massive V12 in it, with three seats, with with space for a bit of luggage. Three seats, it luggage really... space, a 6.1 litre V12, yeah. and 1160 kilos. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It does okay. make a lot of other have, cars you know, look silly. Safety features and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's just such a, it's such a clever, clever car. And you um, did explain this. It's almost as if it was designed by a genius. <laughs> you, and you did explain this beautifully yesterday. So... Some people tell me that it, to drive now, actually, if in terms of when, in terms of handling, um, perhaps not the legend that it's it's often said to be, because you know, right at the limit, it's maybe not as tightly controlled as it could be. Maybe it's a bit snappy, but short of the limit, actually, it does sound like it's quite special. Oh, right at the limit, you could get yourself in a world of pain, and plenty of people did. Plenty of good drivers had big accidents in F one. Um, and yeah there's no doubting that uh, in the wet as well Um, but but then to me it comes down to how do you define handling because if you define handling in terms of only in terms of the limit so 10 tenths oversteer understeer then yes by modern standards where cars are so cleverly designed to be to, to look after the driver it's an absolute animal no safety systems of any kind at all um you know they're quite softly sprung um so there was you know there was quite a lot of rollover steer and that sort of thing but to me that's that's a tiny fraction of it to me handling is and always has been how accurately does the car you know execute the instructions of its drivers you know what's the steering like how does it feel how accurate is it how poised is it um you know what's the visibility like? There, there are so many different components to handling, and everybody just you know, everybody just sort of focuses on the fact. Oh, you know, if you chuck it into a hundred and ten mile an hour corner and lift off, um, you know, it's going <laughs> to it's going to chuck you in the hedge. Well, yeah, probably will. Um, yeah. But you know, it's a tiny, tiny fraction um, of what that car is about. And I think that if you just drive it at anything up to like eight and a half tenths, um, you know, what you'll find is a car it rides so well. Um, that central driving position where you're always the same distance from every apex, be it left or right. Um, it, it, it just feels so innately right. Um, that, yeah, it's, mm. it's a has to be on the wondrous, list, joyous, magical car. Um, okay, well, let's have another one from you. Another one from me. Okay, um, so this is this is my other important car it's the important car i referred to earlier which is it's probably the most important car that's ever been produced by anyone in, in, in the world uh, and i think i asked you last night what it is so you already know the answer to that so i won't do that again it's a model t ford never driven one you know this is the car that 
democratized motoring. This yeah. is a car that, and I said this last night as well, this is, I don't think that there has ever been an invention of any kind, a single invention of any kind, which has provided more freedom to more people than the Model T Ford. Because before that, for almost everybody, well, actually for everybody, apart from the unimaginably wealthy, you, know, you were limited by how far your horse could go. Um, and then you could get in the Model T Ford, and not only could you go places, your family could go places too. And you know, as long as you could find the petrol, you could keep going forever. Um, and I also find them really, really interesting because apparently they're absolute sods to drive um, <laughs> because they don't work like normal cars. It's not like hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, very well versed in driving extremely old cars, and you know, if a car's got you know a center throttle or a crash gearbox or any of those sort of weird quirks of old cars and i'm, I'm completely fine with that um but the model t ford is by all accounts it's basically it's almost not like driving because nothing does the, what you want it to or nothing does what you think it's going to do um and, and i would i would appreciate the challenge of doing that apparently you can get your head around it i mean steve cropley steve cropley drove one to geneva once for a story <laughs> that um, is amazing which is an amazing thing to do. Um, so you know, clearly it can be done. And um, yeah, it's such an important car. Um, and I've never driven one and I'd love to. Yeah, it, uh, we said this yesterday, didn't we? Some cars change indus- change sectors, the Mondeo, the Focus. Some cars change industries. This changed the society, which is a far bigger thing than maybe any other car has ever Yeah, and, and then think of the influence. You know, th- you know, think, of, you know, think of the Austin 7 you know, the, in the mm. UK. Um, did the same thing you know suddenly people suddenly realized that cars weren't the exclusive preserve of the wealthy and they weren't toys they were tools as well that could be used Um, and it all started with the model t Um, so you know its influence is you know fine the model t itself sold millions and they and and it put an awful lot of americans on the road but actually that is a very small portion of its contribution it's all the other cars that were designed to compete with it um and all the other countries in the world that were liberated by um all those cars that would never have existed without the model t most important car in the history of the in the history of the world ever okay let me give you another one of mine and i think you've got a good one in response to this on a similar sort of british american v8 caddish kind of theme i okay really i really want to drive a bristol um I don't really care which one. Uh, I'd like to drive a fighter because that's a, just a bizarre, bonkers car. But that's not really the kind of Bristol that I have in mind. I'm thinking no. more like a, Blen- a Blenheim. Um, you know, one of those sort of weird, boxy things. Um, for a couple of reasons. I'm from Bristol, proudly born and raised. And so to have a car maker from this city, named after this city, uh, I don't know. I just find that quite romantic. But my uncle has had a couple of Bristols. Um, <laughs> No laughing at the back there. He had a, um, a Blenheim, and I remember riding in it um, and as a kid and just thinking it was extraordinary, the most sort of comfy, luxurious vehicle I'd ever been in. Um, and I just want to try and understand who it is, apart from my uncle, who, but who chooses a Bristol over everything else, what they actually are like to drive, how, just how luxurious are they compared to more mainstream cars. Have you driven many? Any? I haven't driven any. No, yeah. because um, Tony Crook, the somewhat enigmatic boss of Bristol for decades, um, he, was, he was an accomplished racing driver. He was a very interesting character. Um, 
but uh, you know apart from i think actually i think apart from Cropley, he really wasn't keen on motoring journalists at all um and certainly of our generation or my generation um and so no i never got in one um but like do you know i actually understand exactly what you're saying um you know something like as you say a blenheim or a bowfighter or a brigand they had such great names didn't they um and uh, i think the interest well i mean there are a couple of things which really interest me about them one is is that they were kind of like the sort of less obvious answer to rolls royce weren't they they were and you know, and much more sporting and interesting um because of that i'm also quite taken by you know there are a couple of very credible people there's a bloke called simon draper um who has the most amazing collection of historic mainly aston martin racing cars very accomplished driver um in his time and he has always sworn by bristol cars loves them the other one i think even more credible is leonard setright you know leonard um you know i'm sure that most people listening to this will know who i'm talking about but an absolutely legendary motoring journalist from the 70s and the 80s um you know who probably the single greatest exponent of the english language ever to turn a pen to the business of writing about cars and he he swore by them he absolutely did so yeah i i i share your enthusiasm for them i'm well sadly i also share your complete ignorance of having driven one so Mm. yeah when you do it just give us a shout and i'll come too it's another story there, isn't it? This is hmm. this is a good sort of editorial meeting as much as anything. Um, okay, so I know you've got one in, re- in retort to my Bristol. Yeah, it's not so much a retort. It's a, it's, it's a similar sort of thing, although the, the terms of reference are slightly different. Um, a Jensen Interceptor FF, and the FF is very important. I don't, hmm. if I'm honest with you, have an awful lot of desire to drive a Jensen Interceptor. I'd quite like to, but it's not one of those cars that i you know that i burned to have a go in uh the point about the ff well, well there are two things about the ff um is that it was the first car to go on sale with anti-lock brakes and the first sporting car to go on sale with four-wheel drive so everybody thinks that you know a uh, sports car four-wheel drive what well, the Audi quattro well no it wasn't and everybody thinks well anti-lock brakes that'll have been an s-class sometimes in sometime in the sort of uh whether it late 70s early 80s no it wasn't it was the ff um and i'm quite i'm kind of quite proud of that but i'm also more than anything else i'm just really interested to see what that that those technologies were like at their earliest stage of development did the four wheel did the steering tug about a bit um was it uh did it feel like an audi quattro felt which was basically like a a two-wheel drive car almost all the time until you really needed the traction was it that good if it was that good why did it take so long for anybody else to copy it um, and the Maxaret anti-lock braking system, I think, and again, someone might tell me I'm wrong, I think it was a mechanical system. So I think what happened was it actually waited until a tyre had locked before releasing the brakes and just carried on doing it. So it was, like, it was like sort of really fast cadence braking, faster than your foot could do it itself. Um, and, you know, again, I'm interested in why that wasn't pursued, uh, why it took so long for it to become common again and yeah i just think that technologically it's a really really interesting car and yeah i'd like to have a go yeah it is amazing really that tiny jensen was there first with these these technologies that we take for granted these days um right i'm going to give you one more i know you've got a few more that we'll rattle through afterwards but i've got one more and it's a bit of a cheat because i'm not talking about a particular car i just want to drive a modern or modern-ish 
Formula One car, right? And I'm thinking, you know, it just needs to be slicks and wings, might even be from the 80s, whatever. Um, I just want to try and understand exactly how far ahead of any other kind of racing car a Formula One car is. I want to try and understand what it is that Lewis and Max feel during a qualifying lap, the forces, how quickly everything rushes at you. I want to try and understand if I could actually operate one of these things. Could I even go quickly enough to get the aero to work, to keep the tyres warm, to keep the brakes in their operating temperature range? Could I handle the steering, the weight of the steering? Would my neck be gone within half a lap because of the G-forces? I, ju- I just have no idea. And I, what I do know is that I would need to build up to it. I would need to start in... Uh, you know, maybe some very junior single-seater, maybe up through a Formula 3 car, and then into the F1 car. I'd need some proper coaching. I'd need the right kind of circuit. <laughs> you know, I'd, it's just, it's so far beyond anything that I've tried before. Um, I would find it fascinating to get even just the the slightest bit of insight into what a Formula 1 car is actually like to drive. And I know you've had a go in a few. Yeah, and, and I think your your instincts are absolutely correct. And the sadness is, you know, on the one hand, I have no doubt at all that circumstances could be brought to bear which would enable you to drive a modern-ish Formula One car more than fast enough to do all the things that you want it to do, to be able to feel the aero, to get the brakes hot enough to work, to keep the heat in the slicks, and so on and so forth. You would be able to do that. Um yeah, there, there is, in my mind, there is no question about that. But the circumstances that are, will be required for you to be able to do that will almost certainly never happen because it's exactly what you say. You would need to spend so much time building up to it. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, I think if they just went and, you know, when I went out to New Zealand to drive the Rodin FZ, um, which is probably the closest thing to a modern Formula One car I've driven, and it's not a modern Formula It's basically, it's a bit quicker than a GP2 car. Um, so, you know, a significant step down. And I spent a day driving around the track they've got there in other stuff, in a GT4 McLaren and then a Formula 3 Dallara, um, and then driving the road very quite slowly with a rev limit before I was allowed um, unfettered access to it. And if they'd just gone, well, here's a track, here's an mm. FZ, fill your boots the very best thing that would have happened is i would have had a completely humbling maybe humiliating experience and would have come away thinking i don't know how to drive the worst thing that would happen is that i would have written the car off um but you know but but through that process where i had a very patient instructor i had all the time in the world and i had all the cars to build up to then yeah and you'd be able to do it and and the other thing i would say is that it doesn't even need to be a very modern one. I, I remember vividly driving a thing called a March 701, 1970. So a 52-year-old Formula One car, Cosworth DV. It had a quite a healthy Cosworth DVM back in it, about 500 horsepower. And the car weighs about 500 kilograms. Okay, so you're talking about a car that's over half a century old, which has double the power-to-weight ratio of a Bugatti Chiron. No, Veyron, sorry. Um... Just imagine that, a thousand horsepower Veyron. You think, wow, that's amazing. Well, try double that kick in the in the back when it gets going. And that's a car that's over half a century old. And even the car of that age would utterly 
bamboozle you, take your breath away, make you doubt your ability to do anything at all uh, uh, until you built up to it. And then it's amazing, you know, how normal these things can become. A few laps and you'd be thinking, this is incredible, but you'd be on top of it. So there's no question at all you'd be able to do it were the circumstances there, which are probably the problem. That's the trickiest bit, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to have a go, though, just to see. Um, Okay. All right. Well, give us... Just rattle through a couple more. I know you've got loads more on your list. Okay. So, um, well, while we're on racing cars, a rather different sort of racing car, um, I want to drive an an old 1960s racing Mini, because I never have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because I know people who who race them, uh, who have them, and they say... There's no other experience like it out there. It's just a totally different sort of experience um, because you drive them in a completely different way. They they drift, but at the other end. Um, mm. And you know, if anyone who's ever seen you know, um, you know exponents like Nick Swift driving minis, they basically don't slow down for anything, um, and they just chuck them in and drift them through the corners. And there is, I know, a very particular technique required for driving those things. Um, I haven't got it. I've never done it, but I, I'd have so much fun finding out. Um, so that's one. Um, supercars. I haven't had any supercars on the list. And this is this a supercar? I'm not sure, but I've always had a thing about Lamborghini Espadas. And yeah. We always had, you know, people of my generation had Countaches on their bedroom walls. But actually, the more I look at a at the Espada, the more I think it is more beautiful than a Countach, and in many ways more interesting because it had the you know, it had pretty much the same powertrain, but it was front engine, it was gorgeous. You put four people in it, um, and I just love the idea. And it was a proper four seater, and I just love the idea of just you know loading up a couple of mates and heading off across Europe in a in an Espada. That to me, there's a, there's a kind of romance to that which I find profoundly appealing um so i want to drive up one of them um lots of people listening to this not you because you're too young will remember the professionals that ridiculous <laughs> um 1970s series which starred you know uh was it martin shaw and lewis collins as doyle and Bodie uh of the fictional uh, intelligence agency ci5 uh and it ran for a few series um utterly indefensible these days i mean the least pc thing you'll ever watch on telly um but i was only ever interested in the cars and they start and and it just occurred to me that all the cars they've have have never driven so they basically i think they started in sort of dolomite sprints i've never driven a dolomite sprint on the road i raced one once but that's kind of like different so um and i'd love to drive a dolly sprint because again i know people who've driven them and they they think they're really good cars they then went into one of them went into an rs2000 escort cool looking car mm-hmm. um always going sideways always skidding about the place i've never driven one so i'd love to do that and then they ended up in capris um and they ended up the last cars they had were mark three three liter s capris so they are the ones which have the really cool net headrest rather than the big squishy ones you got on the gear um and i've never driven one of those either i've no i don't think i've ever driven any capri apart from a sort of track day special which doesn't really count so um yeah, I guess this is sort of a bit of a trip down memory lane tree and it's cars from your childhood and whatever and the cars that influenced you when you were at the most influent, easily influenced time of your life. But yeah, I'd love to drive, I'd, I'd love to drive those too. Um, let me give you one more. What are we going to go to? Oh yeah, okay, finally. A TVR Sagaris. Yeah, I've driven one of those actually. Yeah, you see, I haven't. And that was, the, that was like the last TVR. And we still remain to see, don't we, whether there's ever going to be another. Mm. And, 
you know, I drove lots of TVRs from that era. I drove a T350C, I drove a Tamora, I drove, you know, Cerberus and, and all that sort of thing. But I never drove the sort of the last and the most nutty of the TVRs. And my understanding is it was, it, it was cars like that which eventually caused the demise of the company because they cost twice as much of the stuff that they traditionally sold. Uh, and people just weren't prepared to spend, you know, pretty top end Porsche 911 money on a TVR. And, and that was that. But, I, I just never did and you know I, were they wild wonderful things to drive were they terminally flawed you know we, we we've always sort of made sort of slight jokes about tvr um because they weren't the most reliable things and you know and people who really understood drove caterums and people who just wanted to be seen in cars drove tvrs and i'm not sure that's a particularly fair um thing to have said and i just want to know i guess just how good they got and whether that was mm. good enough clearly from the market point of view it wasn't it would be yeah yeah i um i drove one a few years ago and it was it, it was interesting and entertaining but i i don't remember it especially fondly um but again that's another story isn't it we should get you in one and, and see what you think um but okay of all the cars that you've suggested just choose yeah. one you can only drive one um it's a tricky one, I'm sure. Model T, I think. Model T. So you know, it's I can't mm. believe that I haven't driven the most important car that's ever been that's ever been built. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there, like there, there, there are lots of others I'd, I'd have more fun driving. I've no doubt at all. Um, but you know, you meant you opened this podcast with talking about you know motoring education, um, mm. and until I drive one, mine is incomplete. So that's it for me. What about you? It would be any Formula One car. There you go. I'd, I just can't believe I will never drive one, but <laughs> as time goes by, it becomes less likely, doesn't it? So I need to well, do something about never, that. It never is a long time, particularly when you're as young as you. Um, I think if you put your mind to it, you'll do it. You, know, you may not drive you know, a 2022 spec Formula One car, but yeah. you know, if you decided that you something. wanted to drive a Slicks and Wings Formula One car, which basically gives you, when are they coming? Late 60s. You know, you've got a, you know, any Formula One car from you know, about 1968 onwards um, will do that for you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely plenty, I'm sure of them. plenty of them i'm sure we could find a way um okay well there we go that was a fun topic um we've got a listener question coming up which won't be a surprise to you um but before we did the listener question let's let me just quickly remind you to head to the dash intercooler.com um to start your free trial of our digital magazine um where we post daily stories by the best writers um and it's going down quite well at the moment so if you haven't checked it out yet maybe now is the time to do that please also rate and review the podcast i can see you doing it um so thank you to everybody who has done it we can also see what an effect it has um on our data on our stats so it really does work please keep reviewing and rating the podcast so the listener question comes from dave marshall um and you'll already have your answer ready to go he says having recently moved from a non-sporting modern family car back to an older mark 5 gti a golf gti as a runaround i was initially struck by how much slower the steering felt in the golf leaving it appearing not particularly sharp on turn in and a little unsporting however after a few miles in a good car down a local b road i realized how much more feel and feedback i was getting how much more rewarding the car felt so he says what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of quick steering? Why have car makers moved towards these very quick steering ratios? 
What an interesting question. I wish I'd heard it before. Um, <laughs> I'd like to spend a lot of time considering my answer, but I suspect you want one now. <laughs> um, yeah, quick steering is there to provide the illusion of sportiness because you don't have to move the wheel very far to get a big reaction from the car. So it sort of darts about the place and it feels very sporty. But also, well, the other thing that does, it makes the car feel nervous because you get a big reaction from a small input. Um, and that's not nice. It's actually quite disconcerting. Um, and if you look at the manufacturers that we admire most from a steering and handling point of view, if you look at Lotus, you look at Porsche, you look at McLaren, um, the one thing they've all got in common is they actually put comparatively slow and particularly linear racks on them. And the speed of the steering is one thing, but the, the way the rack, rack responds is another. Um, so you have these variable ratio racks where you know, and you know, so, so when you go off center, you know, it'll be very quick, so you get a big reaction, and then the more you turn, the slower it'll become. Um, and so you actually have a different ratio of the rack depending on how far you turn the wheel. Uh, and that to me just makes cars feel unpredictable because you don't know exactly what you're going to get, what kind of output you're going to get to any given input. Um, so if you have a linear rack, um, you know, that allows you to the driver to always know what kind of reaction you're going to get. And if you have a slow, if you, and if you have a reasonably slow reaction, the car's going to be much more predictable. Um, and you're just going to be able to, you're going to be more accurate with it because you're not going to be making these millimetric little movements and getting big reactions out of the car. It's just going to be much easier to place the car. You don't want to be too slow with the rack because you know the moment you haven't you know you start having to drive the car from your shoulders or your elbows and using armfuls of lock um that's not very comfortable and also you know should something happen and you find yourself having to apply some opposite lock then you don't want to have to apply too much of it because it takes time to do it and by which stage you know the, the, the car may have gone beyond the point of no return so there is a middle ground um i mean the interesting example to me which you will know about is ferrari um you know 10 years ago ferraris were you know they were spoiling their cars by putting really aggressive racks on them you know they're quite light and you get this sort of you know massive movement the moment you turn the wheel and you know none of us liked it um the cars are beautifully balanced in all other regards um and you can hoof them around on the throttle to your heart's content but they never steered the way we wanted them to and it's almost as if with each successive generation of Ferraris that we drive these days, they're just coming back and back and back from that. And now they still, you know, they have really, you know, much slower, more predictable racks. So, so there is a middle ground. Um, you want a sort of medium speed, but above all, a linear rack. So you just yeah. know what your car is going to do. And it's as simple as that. There you go, Dave. That is, I reckon, a fairly comprehensive answer. So thanks for your question. Please get your questions across and we'll end next week's podcast with another.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.